Well, hi there, you, and thanks for listening to the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Asfragadu, and on this episode, I welcome music journalist Michael Goldberg back to the pod. The last time Michael was on, he was promoting his then-new book, Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey. Well, he has a new book to chat about, and it's a really good one. Before we get to the conversation with Michael, can you do the podcast a favor? Let other music obsessives know about this little podcast. We're on the most popular podcasting app, so just tell your friend, family member, or coworker to search for Planet LP, give a listen, and subscribe. We're still on the social apps too. Instagram, it's the Planet LP. Facebook, just search for the Planet LP page by going to the search bar feature and typing in Planet LP. I'm on the app Groupie now. It's an app where fans share and write about songs and albums. They've connected those recommendations to Spotify so you can listen to what others are grooving to. And it's in the Apple and Google app stores under the name Groupie Discover Share Listen. And I still have a Twitter account for now for the time being. And that's at the Planet LP. So with that wrapped up, let's get to the interview with Michael Goldberg. Michael Goldberg is a Bay Area-based music journalist. He's been writing for decades about bands and artists who are now iconic, but he met them, well, many of them, back in the day when they were just starting out or just starting to peak. He has a new book out called Addicted to Noise, The Music Writings of Michael Goldberg, which is published by Backbeat Books and has a foreword written by iconic music critic, Grail Marcus. Well, hi there, Michael. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. uh, It's great to have you. Your book has some wonderful interviews with folks like, and I'm going to name just a handful of them, but it's going to sound long. John Lee Hooker, Prince, The Ramones, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, The Replacements, Slater Kinney, James Brown, Lou Reed, Tom Waits, Devo, Robbie Robertson. I, I think I just barely scratched the surface here. There's a whole lot more in here. It's a book that's over 400 pages long. So you're going to get a lot of value from this book. So really enjoyed the read. And as we're heading into the holiday season, if you're thinking about a good book for a music lover in your life, this one would be perfect for them because it's got a wide variety of interviews and it really captures a time from the 70s right up into the 2000s, 90s, maybe in 2000s, where you're talking about a, a period of music and some of the artists who have shaped it. One of the things that I was looking at, or what I was thinking about when you, when I was reading this book, was about music journalism in general. That back in the day, and I'm talking about from the 70s to maybe, maybe 2006 ish, music journalism had a lot of sway over the public. I mean, I would read critics, and if they would recommend an album or they would do an interview with a band, I would go check it out. I'm not sure if that infrastructure exists today in any kind of influential way. I think we're kind of in a generation or a time where TikTok is like the tastemaker at this point. When you were starting out, you were writing during a time when the infrastructure I just kind of sketched was very influential. So do you think that we'll ever get back to a time when a critic could actually, or a music journalist could really influence the way in which people perceive an artist or check somebody out and say, hey, so Michael Goldberg wrote this great review of this band. I'm going to go check it out. I mean, maybe it still happens, but not to the extent that I that I gleamed from your book. 
mean, a lot of things have changed um, since since the you know late '60s, '70s, mm-hmm. and, and and '80s um, regarding music criticism and music journalism. Right. I mean, I don't know that critics, music critics, were ever hugely influential in terms of record sales. I mean, if if that had been the case, then I think Big Star would have had a hit. Yeah. <laughs> you, you Good know? point. And, yeah. and uh, a few things that are sort of key. One is rock music for a time was kind of at the center of things. Bob Dylan, the Beatles, mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones, you know, to name the, the three sort of the, that were at the sort of the top. When they were releasing records, rock music was it. I mean, there was just, it was like at the, really at the center. And that's not the case today. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the billboard charts, you'll see a a ton of songs by Taylor Swift. Right. You know, I don't know if there's a rock song on the top 100 right now. So that's a huge change. Most people are listening to other music, pop music to contemporary soul music, Mm -hmm. hip hop. Back in the day, there were just a handful of rock publications that were that really mattered. Rolling Stone, of course, Cream, Crawdaddy. Maybe Hit Parader. I don't know. Hit Parader, would you say? Maybe Crawdaddy. Maybe. I think when Ellen Willis was writing in the New Yorker, um, her column, that had an influence. Mm-hmm. And today, you've just got a zillion online publications of various sorts and blogs and and then, you know, as you were saying, you've got all the social media. Right. Stuff I just think about on. how influential TikTok is right now in yeah, terms of I mean, shaping musical tastes. And, yeah. uh, what, you know, a, a song could be featured on a 30 second or a 60 second clip, but that hook suddenly gets people interested in the song. You don't really need a critic or a music journalist to spotlight this stuff. It's just people either doing crazy dances or saying, I love this song. And suddenly, You've got its own marketing machine that comes up. The other big thing is we have access to pretty much every song that has ever existed <laughs> online, you know, right, via Spotify, right. via you know, some of the other streaming services, via YouTube. So you can go directly from the song to the, to the fan. You don't need the rock critic in between to start telling you about the song that you can then go to a record store mm-hmm. and if you're lucky, you know, they'll let you listen to it there. And otherwise you've just got to buy it and hope that what the critics said really pans out when you listen to the music. And then in terms of music journalism, back when I was um, doing a fair amount of the interviews that are in this book or profiles, you could get a lot more access to an artist than as far as I can tell you can these days. Hmm. Kind of an irony in a way, right? We live in an age where there's so much that's shared online, including the artists sharing tons of stuff, but then music journalists don't have a lot of access to them, but then you go back well, in it's, time. It's all, it's all about control. Yeah. It's yeah, all yeah. about control. And, and what the music business learned as time went on was the more you limit access, the more control they have over what is actually written about an artist. I mean, if you right, spend right. if you spend three days hanging around with an artist, well, you're going to see all kinds of stuff. You're going to have a real sense of who this person is. 
that you're hanging around with, that you're interviewing, you're observing them in different situations where they're mm-hmm, interacting mm-hmm. with people. That gives you much more information to work with as a writer than if you, you know, get somebody on the phone for 15 minutes or even get them in a conference room for 15 minutes or, or a half hour or even an <laughs> yeah. hour. And then that's it. You don't get to see them in any other situation or, and, and I mean, that's not always the case. I mean, certainly um, writers from Rolling Stone get to spend time with certain artists these days. There's a piece I do. It's a profile of Robbie Robertson and it was time to come out when his first solo album, Great album, too. I love that record. Really great album. Yeah. I spent about a year off and on spending time with Robbie Robertson. Wow. From the beginning of when I first met up with him in L.A. Mm -hmm. to when I finished the story. I mean, it wasn't constant, but I went down to L.A. and we we hung out for for an evening. And then some time went by and then I went back down to LA and I spent some more time with him and he had like a, at a recording studio in Santa Monica there, he had a small studio in the upstairs area that was like his, his, and that's where he went to work every day, basically. So I met with him, him there and we hung, hung out and interviewed him for a bit. Then some time went by. Then I came back down to LA and Daniel Lanois was recording him. Don't remember offhand which studio, but anyway, a a studio in LA maybe. And, and so I spent all day in the studio observing them work, you know, Mm -hmm. and then more time and then back down to LA, you know, and so this went on and then, then he was up in Woodstock doing a bit of recording and getting some, some former members of the band to sing on, you know, one of the songs I was there, I was able to be both in the studio at, um, at Bearsville um, as they were recording and also do more interviewing and, and hanging out with him. And basically because this transpired over the course of an entire year in the story, I'm able to get a sense of time passing and a variety of locations where I'm showing Robbie Robertson. I mean, it's a piece I'm I'm really proud of. I, I don't think I ever uh, that was that was the one where I actually was able to sort of take it as far as I as I felt I could in a magazine article as opposed to a book mm-hmm. in terms of the this span of time and, and all. I don't know that if you would be able to do that. It doesn't seem point, like it. I mean, you know? even even with like album reviews, like like you, I'm I'm also a music writer. I used to freelance quite a bit. Every now and then, I'll write a piece for for Popdose site I've been a part of since 2008. As far as critical reviews go, like if a publicist sends me a recording and asks for my, you know, say, can you can you give this a listen and and maybe write this up, you know, kind of pitching me, he doesn't say. Have a listen to this. The last time I wrote a bad review was, and I won't say who the artist is, but I just really did not like the record. And I gave it not a a bad review out of malice or anything like that. It was just this, to me, missed the mark. And I sketched the ways in which I thought this record didn't do well. Well, the record didn't actually do well for the artist, but the publicist was really ticked off that I didn't like the record. I took a chance on you giving you access before this record was even released. And then you, you come in and you write this horrible review of it. I said, look, not every record's going to hit it out of the park. You might want to pitch some other 
some other websites that maybe like this record a little bit more. And I said, you're going to get what you're going to get with a critic. I said, I told you I'm going to give it an honest appraisal. And I did. But nowadays, I don't even bother reviewing albums that I have maybe feel like, you know, has some deficiencies. Instead, I just review albums that I really like because publicists aren't going to bother to even forward these sort of things, they control that in terms of the bad press. So if I find an album I really like, I'll write about all the critical things I think that they did well on it and leave it at that. So that's kind of where I am with it. That's a perfect example of, of how things have changed. I mean, when you when you read Cream Magazine's review section back <laughs> in, you know, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, there were critics that were just, you know, just laying in Rolling Stones yeah. review sections, well, just laying into albums yeah. That, yeah. that they that they didn't like for for one reason or another. And then on the other hand, writing, you know, turning us on to albums by groups that we might otherwise never have heard of. First album or, you know, first or second album, and the group was not popular, but the music was incredible. You know, that's one of the things they were trying to do was find the great albums that no one is aware of yet. I agree. And, and, you know, you you talked about how Cream or Rolling Stone would really lay into an artist. Let's talk about one of the artists you spotlight in your book, and that's Devo. They were called Nazis, clowns, and sellouts. Now, that to me, that's quite a trifecta. But their music was, to me, very critical of the mainstream. And that's because the guys came out of the mainstream and this culture that they kind of despised. So they would sort of mock it in a very cartoonish way. And their first album, which it should be noted that was produced by Brian Eno and David Bowie, the song Jocko Homo is very weird if you think about it in terms of when this thing came out. I want to play a little clip to, just to refresh people's memories here. Love Devo, and I don't care what Rolling Stone says about them. <laughs> they, you can call them Nazis, you can call them clowns, you can call them sellouts. It doesn't matter. Uh, I just think that that was a kind of, you know, a very transformative type of sound that that was just starting to go over into the mainstream. And of course, they did a cover of the uh, Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, Satisfaction, which was great too. I mean, that was just like a total reinterpretation of the song. Talk a little bit about Devo because they were kind of slagged in the music press, at least well, Rolling Stone. Well, Rolling Stone just went after them. I mean, Dave Marsh wrote a review of, um, I think it's their second album. He ended the review by saying that he hated their music so much <laughs> that he was now going to take a hammer and he was going to smash the record to bits. And I think he said something like, if you want one of the shards, um, you know, send me a letter or something like that. <laughs> and uh, Chris Morris reviewed one of their concerts for, for Rolling Stone. And he said that they had nothing to say. 
and that the show bore all the orgiastic earmarks of a Nuremberg rally for oh Spud God. Boys. Okay. Okay. So uh, I guess he, I now, guess he didn't now, get the joke, did he? <laughs> now the thing is. I don't get it at all. I mean, it almost mm-hmm. seems like somebody who was like a big fan of, you know, Frank Sinatra in the in the fifties, and then Elvis shows up, and they just don't get it. Right, right, and they, right. And, and they're like raging against this new new music. Devo's first album was really was musically really innovative. It was. I mean, yeah. nobody was kind of doing what they were doing. I mean, they were they were basically taking this very sort of mechanized, sort of industrial kind of a sound, and they were fusing that with rock and roll. Just the sounds from their guitars, from the synthesizers. I mean, the whole thing was very original. I mean, I at least that's how I heard it. When, oh, I, when I first started listening to them, yeah. and they were criticizing what was at the time our, our civilization mm-hmm. at that time. They, and they were saying in the simplest terms, they were saying, we are devolving. You know, exactly. Are, that exactly. man kind of maybe reached a certain point. Now he's heading south. The thing is, they were so right, because look at where we are now. Look at what's gone on. We've just let climate change happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we could have stopped it. But we didn't stop it. What's happened in terms of politics in this in this country recently, and I mean, there's just there's just so many areas that where things have just really gone downhill. I was just gonna say, it feels like at some level they were ahead of their time. They were pointing out a de-evolution that was occurring, and I think it was the guitarist who was at Kent State, and he yeah, said Jerry Gasol. Mo- he said that. At Kent State, when the soldiers opened fire on the students, that was the moment of Devo. That's when Devo started, the de-evolution. Interestingly enough, Chrissy Hines' roommate was in that iconic picture of the woman standing over the yeah. one of the students that was shot. That was her roommate at the time, and, and Chrissy Hine went to Kent State during that, that period. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to see that if you want to call it a, a countercultural moment of the 60s and how that, how that manifests itself artistically in the 70s and into the 80s, with Devo specifically, is that they were critiquing a system. But again, I don't think a lot of rock critics understood the critique I think their fans got on board with it. They they saw the humor in, in the way in which they used humor and mixed these sort of cartoonish characters, whether it was Devo themselves or some of the you know, like Bougie Boy and, and things like that. It made for like you were in on the joke, like you could see the the grotesque nature of the system in a way that it was devolving. And these characters that they created. Look, they are kind of cartoonish, but they also look like they're devolving themselves. They look very weird. So they're they're not men anymore. <laughs> they're Devo. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and it and it's not all rock critics that didn't like Devo. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were well, I mean, I was a huge fan of Devo. So was another Bay Area critic, Michael Snyder, was a big, big fan of Devo. And there were a number of us that really appreciated what they were doing, but in some of the major major publications of the time, there were critics who were really, who were really tr- trashing them. One of the big themes, if I could take away, I know that these are writings that you've assembled through your career, but there seems to be, not every artist, but a theme that I discerned that's been woven through. Most of the artists that I have read about in your book 
echo this, and it's a, just a dissatisfaction with what is. That seems to come across often, whether it's a dissatisfaction with the artistic world, the political world, even when you go to like your first interview with John Lee Hooker, who I got to know his music when I was in college in the 80s because I was a music fan and I was trying to learn more about genres that I knew nothing about. So I'd go to the record store and just flip through and I'd see something that looked interesting and I'd buy it. But your interview with him, when you sat down and, and, and talked to him, a few things stuck out. One was that we didn't quite know his age, but he stopped drinking because he saw what it did to his contemporaries. The other thing is sort of, I don't know, for pop cultural fans of of that era, you know who the Blues Brothers are, but you may not know that their look was inspired by John Lee Hooker, that they looked at you know the dark glasses, the suit, the hat, and they said, we got to do something like what John Lee Hooker is doing. So that was the inspiration. And then something I didn't know about him is that he had a stutter when he first started out recording. He was a different style of a guitarist. So for him, it seems like He's this guy who just really wanted to have this sort of authentic voice, even though he had some bad marriages and maybe some bad business deals, but he kept playing the music. When The Healer comes out, he gets kind of a second life in terms of a, of a mainstream career. But I just found this, his, his interview very interesting because he really, he presented himself and he seemed very much an authentic person. Like it wasn't an act that he was putting on for anyone. He was just like, Hey man, I'm just glad you're here. This is what I do. And I don't think you get that much with some artists. They tend to affect a certain persona, but for John Lee Hooker, it was refreshing to read that. Yeah, no, I think he'd been at this for so long, you know, by the time I sat down with him, he didn't have to prove anything. Right. I mean, I mean the, the guy had just, I mean, you think about it. I mean, back in like the, the late 40s, he has a hit with a song was so influential. This is Boogie Chillin'. Boogie Chillin', I mean, yeah. And it was so influential on rock and roll. I mean, some people think that it's it, it's one of the core songs of rock and roll, you know, that, mm-hmm. that just set the whole thing rolling. So you think about that, and then you think about, the healer, which was like a huge seller for him, and and really was a was a great comeback for him. But between 1949 and the healer, it's not like he was like out of the out of the spotlight. He was in and out of the spotlight, off and on, all over those decades. Sometimes he was happening and he was popular, and sometimes sometimes he was wasn't. But I mean, like in the in the 60s. He was collaborating and got involved with Canned Heat, and they were very influenced by John Lee Hooker. But, I mean, that kind of brought him back. You know, I mean, like he had – all through his career, he would have these these kind of, you know, what you could call them comebacks. But, I mean, you think from 1949 to 1989, I mean, that was the span from his first single to The Healer. And the thing was, I mean, his sound with Boogie Chillin' – was re- I mean, it was really different. I mean, it's not like he just invented it from nothing. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, its roots are in sort of in you know North Mississippi Hill Country Blues, which is very droning, one chord thing. And that's basically kind of what he he took that and and then took it to a, to another level. I would I was or a different level, I would say. Yeah. But yeah. basically, he would he would you know open tune his guitar. He doesn't have to really do any fingering for chords. 
and he'd he'd be playing one chord, mm-hmm. and then periodically he would throw in some key riffs, but very sparingly. So I mean, it was really different than say Howlin' Wolf. You, you've got spectacular lead guitar happening through through the songs. Mm-hmm. Hookers was very different. They're both brilliant. You know, they're both great. Right, right, the music right. is in both parts. Another artist that was influential to you was Bob Dylan. And you started to fall in love with his music at a very early age. I think you said you were about 12 years old or so, 12, 13, somewhere around there. 1965. So yeah, 12, 13. 12, 13. Yeah. Yeah. When I heard like a Rolling Stone on the radio, that just like blew me away. I mean, yeah. And your, your piece on, on Dylan was interesting because again, I wanted to get at that notion of authenticity because he, he was upfront. He said, I wanted to be a poet first because his view of the artist was that you could be an authentic, an expression of an authentic self. And he'd liked, I mean, well, he was very attracted to that or he wanted to do that because as he said, so many people around him were phonies. And I, I found that to be a, an interesting view of Dylan because prior to his motorcycle accident, I mean, he was kind of a firebrand. I mean, if you look at the documentary that was done on him, he, he doesn't really take a lot of crap from anybody. So he's, he's very, almost very self-assured. I don't know if that's him, his authentic self, or this is the persona of Bob Dylan, but uh, he was, he was a very different person prior to not only his motorcycle crash, but I think, you know, his, his problem with um, substance abuse at times. And then when he got, he sort of found Jesus and got saved. And then he got back on, on track with recording music that was um, more along the lines of what he wanted to do. But he really felt, I think maybe the destructive forces of this kind of lifestyle on him. And, you know, we could go long and and for hours on Bob Dylan, but when you when you look at this interview, or not this interview, but this piece that you did on him, do you see that that he's really always striving for that that sense of authenticity in his in his artistic expressions? The piece is about specifically about how the beat writers of the fifties influenced Bob Dylan. In that piece, I'm pointing out lines in particular songs that came right out of a Jack Kerouac book. And I give a bunch of bunch of examples of, of this. But I quote T.S. Eliot, who wrote, basically said that there's people who like take stuff from that other people have written and copy it. And then there then there are like the geniuses who steal something, but they do something completely, completely new with it. I mean that's mm-hmm, that's kind mm-hmm. of essentially what T.S. Eliot said. Way back when, way before Bob did, there was a Bob Dylan. Yeah, that's that's but, almost like the remix culture that we're in. You take something and you remix it in a way to kind of make it your own, but the the source of that inspiration may be a bit obscured. You know, and so Dylan would he would take melodies from old old songs. Mm-hmm. Parts of his lyrics would come from all over the place, but the end result, the song, these songs were were unique and brand and brand new. And basically no one had done the kind of intellectual literary brought the literary quality to lyrics that Bob Dylan did. When you combine that with a really unique and distinctive voice and then the the rock and roll that 
he came up with, with the help of brilliant musicians, including Michael Bloomfield and Robbie Robertson and the other members of the band and Al Cooper. And no one had ever really done anything like that before. It's that fusion of, of the literary and, and the musical in, a, in a, a bit of a folk tradition, not just a bit, but definitely a folk tradition. Dylan had, again, like many artists who are in it for the long haul, they get a resurgence here and there. 1997 was a pretty big year for him, you know, time out of mind. Um, And there's going to be some fragments that are going to be released next year, specifically on that record, which he didn't like what Daniel Lanois, and you talked about him earlier, did on that record with the treatment on his voice. It made it sound a little uh, otherworldly and so forth. But his output since 1997, to me, had some high points. I mean, I started getting into Dylan's music when I was in college because of MTV, Dylan had put out an album called Empire Burlesque, not probably his best record, but they were playing his video on MTV. And I was like, yeah, Dylan seems like an important artist. Maybe I should, you know, check out some of his, uh, not only this current record, but the back catalog as well. So that's kind of, that was my entryway really to Bob Dylan was Empire Burlesque. Wow. I know, weird. It's not really that great of an album, but uh, it was because they played the, the video to tight connection to my heart a lot at that point. And that did it for me. But I'm going to play a little snippet from a song called Duquesne Whistle that he co-wrote with Robert Hunter, who was the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. And listen to how his voice has changed. This is back from 2012. Listen to that Duquesne whistle blowing Blowing locks gonna sweep my world away I'm gonna stop in Carbondale and keep on going That Duquesne train gonna ride me night and day You say I'm a gambler, you say I'm a pimp But I ain't neither one Listen to that Duquesne whistle blowing yeah, I mean, his voice isn't that strong, but it has a character to it. You know, it, it has it reminds that, me that, of Louis Armstrong a little bit. Does it really? Yeah, a little bit. So, it does, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. But there's something about that song. I, I mean, I really like the sort of, just the whole package, really. I really like the way it, it sounds. The video is great, too. He co-wrote that with Robert Hunter. He also took another Robert Hunter song that... He did call Silvio, and I thought that that was a pretty good one, but that was you know in the 80s as well. But what do you think of his output since 1997? In terms of what he released during most of the 80s, it was really bad. Uh, you know, for Bob Dylan fans, it was a very sad thing. Although, you know, it turns out this great song he wrote about Willie McTell, that ended up being released on, initially on one of the bootleg you know, albums, uh, official bootleg albums. Some people think that's one of his greatest songs. I mean, it's 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 a great song. So it wasn't like he wasn't doing things that were really good, but he didn't release it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> he, you know, but by 1992, he released an album called Good As I've Been To You. And this was basically Bob Dylan going back to the old, you know, folk music, folk and blues music that, had been very important to him earlier in his career. He basically did two albums, Time, I mean, I'm sorry, Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, where he's going back and he's playing those old songs. And mm-hmm. that was really the beginning 
I think, of sort of the second great period for Bob Dylan. Then he did Time Out of Mind, you know, an right. album of originals material and a really, really strong album. And I think for the most part, since then, Dylan's been making really great work. And in terms of his voice, what's what's very interesting to me is that beginning with Shadows in the Night, which was uh, an album of basically of songs that Frank Sinatra had done, and it was the first of three albums of that kind of pop music from the, really from the past of standards that he was covering. His voice was different. Is different. If you listen mm-hmm. to those albums, his voice has gotten a lot smoother, hmm. and it's like I don't know what he did, but his voice is really different than what you just played. Yeah, because it it's the, the grovelly and, voice now. Yeah, yeah. And and with his most recent album of original material, Rough and Rowdy Ways from 2020, yeah. he's able to bring that voice to his own new material. Right. Uh, which is, he's which got is, like Murder Most Foul, which is like a 20-minute song or something yeah. like that. You know? But but it's I mean, it's, it's just really interesting. I mean, how what's happened with his with his voice the writing for time out of mind for love and theft for modern times tempest rough and rowdy ways i mean he's written really great songs starting with in 97 so i wanted to transition to an artist that uh, you spotlight patty smith patty smith releases a, a pretty seminal album in 1975 called horses and you've interviewed her a few times at least talked to her a few times yeah, and, she, and, and the first time you talked to her, she had this quote, and I'm just going to quote from your book. She said, I wasn't horrified by Altamont. Altamont was that Rolling Stones concert where the Hells Angels provided security and somebody died there, was stabbed. Uh, she says, it seemed natural to me. Every high school dance I went to, somebody was stabbed. Now, I doubt that that was the case, but <laughs> I'm sure she's just talking about the sort of hard scrabble area of New Jersey that she grew up in to sort of contrast with Bruce Springsteen because they both come out of New Jersey. And I would say that with her, she became in a way, like you said, when you talk to her later in her career, she became a more difficult person. She was a very different person from the person you first met. She was grabbing reporters' notebooks, criticizing their questions, being kind of a pill. <laughs> and I don't know. How do you deal with difficult artists like that? I mean, you've you've interviewed enough people to where somebody's going to throw a bit of a, a tantrum or a spectacle or do something outrageous. With Patty Smith, it was really bizarre because the first time I spoke to her was on the telephone, mm-hmm. and it was before Horses was released. I had been reading about her in the Village Voice, and even though I was I was in San Francisco, but I subscribed to the Village Voice. It was obvious there was a there was a whole scene happening in New York that was really interesting, and Patty Smith was part of that. And so I was reading about her, and I think I heard the single that she originally came out on Lenny Kay's label with Piss Factory on it, which is like an amazing piece that she, that she did. So then I got the advance of, of her album and it was horses. It was incredible. So I ended up talking to her in the, the fall of, um, of 1975. Initially, she was great on the phone. I mean, she was friendly and talkative. And then when she came out here, my wife and I ended up writing some stories about her we were writing together at that point. And anyway, we went to the boarding house and saw her play. 
And then we went backstage afterwards and hung out with her. And she was just great. And she was sort of upfront. And she said, well, I didn't like this one, this one thing you wrote. It was really short. It was too, it was, it was really short, but I, but I liked this, this one you did for the Berkeley bar. And then we, we said, well, we, that was not what we wrote. And she said, you know, I knew, I knew that I thought that, that that was probably not what you had actually written. And, and because the thing is what, what we had written had gotten just edited down to a re- to something really short. From, mm-hmm. You know, we we had written like a thousand words, and this ended up what sh- showed up was like three hundred words or something. I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, but the piece in the, Ber- the in the Berkeley Barb was the piece that we that we wrote, and she could see that, and so and so we had a it was it was really nice just just hanging out with her, and then we went to another show she did, and and, and then, then you flash forward, yeah, and then, then we moved forward, forward yeah. and and yeah. she has the big hit with because the night the song that that did with Springsteen, or I mean he with her on anyway he contributed and then and then Iovine was the producer of that record right Easter so there was this Bruce Springsteen connection right there because Iovine was very much involved in Springsteen's career at that point but uh, continue please yeah and so basically she had this press conference at the hotel where she was staying and I don't know what was going on with her but she just went off and she was just going after the different people that were there. And it was a mix of like, of fans and people that were doing fanzines and then mm-hmm. some critics like, like myself. At that point, I was writing for some of the local papers. I wasn't writing for Rolling Stone yet. She decides with me, she says, you go talk to Lenny Kay. He's in the next room. You know, it's like I'm banished for no particular reason. And then- Yeah, then, it seemed like you had a good relationship with her. And then, Prior well, to that. it and was then, yeah. almost like she was in some different place, some different zone. I, I don't know what that was. I don't know what the cause of that was, why that was happening. Maybe, maybe just dealing with the success. I, I don't know. But, but then many years later, when she did her comeback after, you know, I mean, she had married, you know, Fred Sonic Smith and they were living in Detroit and, and she just did nothing creatively, you know, musically. I mean, they, they were just living their lives for, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, and then after he died, she had done one album while he was still alive. Then she decided that she was going to record again. And, and really, she was going to record again with Fred Sonic Smith. I mean, they were going to, with, I mean, she, it was going to be her album, but, but he was sort of, he was working with, with her, uh, as I understand it. And she felt like just as a, to honor what he wanted her to do, she was going to make a new album. And she made that album gone again. And then uh, when she came to San Francisco, we, pretty soon after the album was released, um, myself and Jan Uhelski sat down with her and spent a couple of hours uh, at her hotel room. It's a very long and in-depth interview. And, and she was really cool. At that yeah, point. I think maybe maybe she was. You said you didn't know what she was going through at the time and why she had the reaction that she did. To me, if I were in that room, I would have just walked out. I would just said, you know what, this is not even worth it to me. But one thing I do respect in in your book, she talks about one of the things that I see a lot of in rock music. I, I grew up was a kid in the seventies, so I grew up in that sort of stadium bloated rock of Kiss and Foreigner and Boston and all of that, and. Kiss is doing their big farewell tour now. It's going in probably into their second year. Foreigner just announced they're doing a farewell tour. And she says in this uh, in this particular piece that's, that stuck out to me, 
I really dislike these farewell tours or these comeback tours or these one last time tours. I don't like that concept. When it was time to disseminate, is that a word? Or disintegrate, I just did it. I didn't want to prolong or exploit it. I really admire that. Just like when you're done, you're done. And just, you don't have to put a big bow on it and say, hey, everybody, I'm going away. Like that big performative thing that people do on social media. I've had it with Twitter. I'm quitting. And then you you stick around to see what people's reaction is. I'm done with Facebook. <laughs> you know, want to you see how your neighbors or your friends react. Like, oh, no, don't go. Don't go. And uh, so she didn't want to prolong it or exploit it. And I thought, uh, yeah, she's got a lot of integrity there. Uh, just dovetailing really quick into your interview with The Clash. Now, they talked about, of all people, Ted Nugent and how he was just like his fans. But it seemed The Clash's fans were, weren't quite down with their political point of view at the time, especially in the United States. And the concluding paragraph of your piece makes it clear when you wrote, of course, the fact that politics are such a part of what the clash do begs the question, can political rock and roll actually accomplish anything? The clash try to be realistic, if not optimistic. Uh, you do have a quote from Mick Jones. Maybe it won't change anything, but I still believe in it as something worth doing. Perhaps we're too ambitious a band. I would say rock and roll can contribute to some minor change. Then he adds stubbornly, but it ain't going to tell the politicians what to do. It ain't going to save the people from wars, adds Strummer with a finality. But we'll have a go at it. And I think that the, the Clash struggled with this. Like, they were a political band. They came to the United States. A lot of Americans, the kids, they like the style and the, the attitude. But maybe they just couldn't get down with the political message. And it just seemed like that there was that that frustration with the clash at, at that point in their career, they realize it like, well, Hey, we tried, we're going to keep trying, but it ain't going to change the politicians and it ain't going to stop a war. I think the clash is fans, not the fans that like heard train in vain in the, on the radio and or should I stay or should I go or something <laughs> and rock the Casbah? Yeah. yeah. I mean, fans who first heard about them, got the first album, bought the first album as an import because it wasn't even mm -hmm. available here. The hardcore Clash fans related to what they were saying in terms of the, the politics of the, in the songs. When you saw them live, they were just so brilliant. It was, it was as great as like the Rolling Stones at their peak. It was incredible. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. was, was lucky enough to see them live a couple of times. And So you, you, you know, consider it, yourself a, a big fan, like an early fan that you got the political message. But did you feel like the more you went to class shows, the more that message got either watered down or just wasn't resonating? In London, the Ramones went over there. And all these people like Joe Strummer and some of the people that were would be in the Sex Pistols, I mean, they saw the Ramones and they were very influenced by the Ramones musically, but they brought a political element to it. The Sex Pistols, The Clash, but lots of other other English bands as well, or a number of other, you know, Gang of Four a little bit later on. Because of what the Sex Pistols and The Clash were doing, then at least here in San Francisco, a bunch of the punk bands here, I mean, politics was part of, the, of their songs. Bands like the Dead Kennedys, um, earlier bands like the Dills, I mean, they had a song called I Hate the Rich. <laughs> the Avengers had a song called We Are the One that was basically um, kind of critical of various, you know, political 
uh, philosophies of the day. Yeah, when you uh, wrote the book, the previous book, well, I guess it's not that old. It came out this year too, but the the one on uh, James Wilsey, Wilsey, you talk about that scene, about the scene in San Francisco, the punk scene, but yeah, definitely there are different scenes. And I guess with the with the clash, what I was looking at when reading your piece and and understanding the the way in which this band has been kind of situated within not only pop culture, but also their own political message that they were trying to bring back to America in a way from saying, Hey, you know, you realize you're getting screwed and we're trying to sing about it. (laughs) You're getting screwed. And the message wasn't resonating in the way that they had hoped to. And I, I don't know if you saw that as the band progressed in their in their career up into, you know, combat rock, but the album that they had previous to combat rock was Sandinista. I mean, that was an overtly left-wing political movement. That's, you know, they called the album Sandinista, right? So, I mean, that in itself is something that they're putting out during Reagan's America. It's making a statement, but is it resonating? That's the thing. Well, there were a lot of people that were a lot of young people that were in line with a lot of what the Clash were singing about. I mean, mm-hmm. whether they were happened to be fans of the Clash or not. Right. I mean, there were a lot of people who absolutely abhorred Ronald Reagan, and for good reason. And also in England, that there were a lot of people who abhorred Margaret Thatcher. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like so you, so you yeah. had this, like, you had these, like, conservative governments going on, but you had a lot of people that were still in opposition to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Definitely. the, thing, the yeah. thing was that, well, the punks, they were in some ways, of course, they were a reaction against the quote unquote hippies of the, of the 60s, but they weren't a reaction against the politics of the time. Mm-hmm. What they were a reaction against was sort of the, oh, laid bow, I'm just smoking dope all day and lying around <laughs> and doing nothing. Right. And, you right. know, they were a reaction against that. And they were a, re- a reaction against, certainly in England, the, the hierarchy in England and just the wealth and inequality and other things as well. But, any, but you know, that's, that would be some, some, some of the things. And a lot of young people here in America were also felt the same way that I think that the clash did. But, you know, the thing is, the problem, and, and so many different groups face this, is you start out and you have, have all your ideals. You've got nothing to lose. You're a band like the clash. You're, you're writing the songs. You're recording them the way, you know, as close to how you want them recorded as as is possible. You know, you try to get a record deal that gives you artistic freedom. And because you're you're not popular yet, the people that do come to your shows and do become your fans, they're hardcore mm-hmm. and they're really in line with you. But once you get a song on the radio and a song that's not not one of your political songs, and so now you've got all these all these people who aren't coming from where you come from. There are people who, they like this song and mm-hmm. they've become a fan of yours because of this song and they're coming to see you because they want to hear you sing this song. That was that was Kurt Cobain's critique of when they became super famous with Nirvana. He said, all the guys that used to beat the crap out of me in high school were in the front row singing my songs and I couldn't <laughs> take it anymore. Yeah. I think that that ultimately became a problem for, for the Clash. And then once Mick Jones, you know, they broke up, sort of the original group broke up. And then 
Strummer kind of did one one album without Mick Jones, and right. that's a terrible album, and it's a yeah. terrible band. And I went, I had to, I had to do a story about the Clash at that point in time. You know, I mean, I had done stories earlier about the, you know, what I think of as the real Clash, mm-hmm. and then I had to do a story, a story about this Joe Strummer-led version, and they were just terrible. You know, I mean, it was just <laughs> like it was, um, that's it was a, really that's sad that the tough assignment. They, yeah, I mean, <laughs> covering a, I mean, but then, then of course, yeah. Strum, Strummer, you know, on his own as a solo artist, I mean, he did some great work. So, so he he redeemed himself from that brief low point. I agree. I think that even like Mick Jones, when he started BAD, I really liked Big Audio Dynamite. I liked a lot of the stuff that they did. It was very, very forward thinking, very unclash, but a lot of cool stuff with sort of mixing what was then hip hop coming up from the underground and electronica and pop. There wasn't a lot of politics in it, but I kind of like the vibe. You know, you talked about the, the clash speaking about inequality, whether it was inequality that affected the working class in England or just talking about it worldwide. I want to end with Prince, an artist that I've been a fan of since I was aware of him as a teenager. And you spoke to him when he was not known as Prince, but as the artist. And you describe him as Sly Stone, James Brown, and John Lennon rolled into one. A very interesting interview because he was sort of unpretentious for most of it. He talked about he was indeed an artist, meaning that when he's in the studio, he's creating things that he's experiencing now. He'd like to put out certain singles like right away, but the label would say, no, you can't do that. But he was also a businessman who started his own label, but he knew the distinction between the two. The one thing that struck me was towards the end of the end of the interview, he was talking about tithing about how he gives money to help those who don't have a lot. And he said, tithing works. And he wanted you to call that the name of the article. (laughs) And then when I saw, he was doing a bunch of hit and run tours before he died. And I got to see him in Oakland. He did a really great job. Carlos Santana was there. Of course, Sheila E was there. She's kind of a mainstay with his band, comes in and out of that. Wonderful time. We had a really, I went with a, a friend of mine. We had a really great time singing the songs and everything. Come to find out, and it was after he died, that Nonprofits in the Bay Area were saying what we really liked about Prince, obviously his music, but that he was always very quiet about donating proceeds from the ticket sales to local nonprofits. And he would always do it with the agreement that we never said a thing, that it was sort of an anonymous donation. That's something about Prince that doesn't get written about a lot, that he gave a lot back to communities that were suffering in order to alleviate inequality in a way that he could. He had plenty of money, so why not try to use some of that money to do good in society? And I think that that's why he was talking about you know tithing works. I know he was a very religious man, but that was something that struck me is that he was he was really focused even at that stage of his career, which he was expecting his first child, unfortunately he didn't didn't happen. The album that he had released at that point was called Emancipation. And he's talking about tithing, which I thought was really kind of an interesting um, an interesting part of that interview that he didn't really uh, highlight in his, uh, I guess, interviews in the past. But did you, I mean, that, that was something I really appreciated. That's what I'm trying to say when I, when I read it. After he died, we really found out that he had donated a lot of money mm-hmm. to different causes to help to help the disadvantaged and like you said it's something that he did not he didn't want people to know about that you know mm-hmm. in other words he didn't want to get quote unquote credit or for that to be part of the of the PR story about prince you know that oh he's the guy that 
that donates money to, to different causes. That's not why he did it. He did it because he wanted to make a difference. And, and I think it would seem that he felt like by not talking about that, it could stay pure, that his motivations yeah. Yeah. wouldn't get confused get confused about why he was doing this. I talked about this at the beginning of our interview. There was kind of a through line with these pieces that you've done, not every one of them, but the ones that I had kind of picked up this theme that authenticity was very important to artists. And it is with any artists worth their salt, I would say so. Alleviating some kind of suffering by changing what is into what ought to be. If you look at Prince, for example, tithing works. He didn't want it to be part of his PR. Like, look who I've given to. Aren't I a great person? No, I'm just going to do it. The clash, talking about inequality and doing it with, you know, with a real gusto and a hammer. You've got Patti Smith, who also a very authentic artist, whose first line in her cover of Gloria was... Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Right? I mean, that's sort of a, almost like a religious authenticity that she's trying to get back to. So, as I and maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too deeply in this, but I just picked this up as I'm reading through these things, and I'm like, wow, this is really kind of interesting because people deride pop stars, rock stars, anyone that says they're trying to change the world. They're like, who are you? You're just supposed to pampered celebrities running around in limousines and thinking that you're saving the world, but in some ways, if you read carefully with what these artists do, they are trying to make a real difference and really trying to change things. They don't have a big grand political philosophy that they've sketched out, but they're doing it in their own way, whether it's a large way or whether it's a smallish way or an, an anonymous way. So that's a very admirable quality that I don't think gets highlighted much with rock stars or pop stars or artists or musical stars. So I really appreciate what you've done with this book. Get yeah. Michael's book. It's called Addicted to Noise, wherever you buy your books. Michael, thanks again for being on Planet LP. It's been really nice talking to you. Great. Thanks for having me again. Like I said, I, it's been really a nice time to talk to you. And as always, thank you, dear listener, for lending your ears to the conversation. Without you, I'd just be a guy talking into the void. Until next time, take care. Be well.